The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith. Sitting next to Ethan Broga as usual. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. This show is designed to share with you prudent investment and financial planning ideas to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. Ethan and I are both principals in Seattle-based wealth management company, Empirical Wealth Management. We are a fee-only advisor providing uh, services to our clients and helping them manage their investments and financial planning needs, Ethan. That's exactly right. Uh this is a live show, so if you do want to contact us, you can reach us at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790 if you have anything you want to add. And uh, it sounds good. We'll, we'll put you on. Otherwise, you can shoot us an email, contact at empiradio.com, and you can send that anytime throughout the week. If you have uh, any questions or issues that you're dealing with you'd like us to examine or talk about, We'd be happy to call you back in person if you'd rather have that discussion in private as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you're comfortable, we'd love to read it. We get we have a couple of things we can talk about today that I've gotten as questions recently, Ethan. All right. And, uh, Ethan, if you wouldn't mind sharing, uh, what else can we do for our listeners? What are you, what, what are you currently offering? <laughs> What's my best offer today? What's the best offer that you have? To get you in a used car today, this is my best offer. Exactly. No, or no. Uh, well, you know, in the past, we've... Um, we're open to meeting one-on-one with, with folks who are perhaps looking for help with the retirement decision in terms of uh, the timing of that, how to best um, organize your either your pension, Social Security investments for that particular purpose, taking a look at taxes, um, a cash flow plan, and then also uh, organizing that within the context of your portfolio. So we'd be happy to get together and discuss those types of things with anybody who's uh, – Looking for help in that area? I think we offer a pretty unique expertise and can help help a lot, quite a bit actually. Uh, that's the, the standard offer. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so give us a call, and you can do that by calling two zero six nine two three three four seven four. Just ask to speak with Ken or Ethan. Or if you're uh, outside of Seattle, you can call one eight hundred nine two three four three zero seven. All right, Ethan. Well, something of interest. I thought we could start today's show. S and P five hundred uh, broke another record. Traded an all-time historic high, and uh, wow, our friends over at Dimensional passed us a study that they were putting together, um, examining, I guess, examining the question: If you're out there today and and you've been invested in the market, or if you are not invested, you've been sitting on the sidelines the whole time the market has been coming back up. 
you may be asking yourself, hey, this hitting a new high, and we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago in one of our programs, but uh, does hitting a new high tell me something about where the market's going to go from here? So do you think that maybe because we're hitting these new highs, the market is in more danger of declining than it was previous to us breaking an all-time high? And mm-hmm. so they said, well, let's look at the empirical data on that, Ethan. Yeah. Uh, which one of the questions that I'd like to address while we're discussing this, Ethan, is does looking at the empirical data that relates to the past have anything to do with the future? Okay. So sometimes I get, uh, I think mostly when it serves a particular opinion or preference an investor might have towards their investment strategy, they'll often say, well, I don't really care what happened in the past, and the time frequency changes depending on, again, how they feel, but it may be something of, well, we've got data going back to 1926 that leads us to believe this or that about the market. They might say, well, I'm not investing in 1926, I'm investing now, and I don't have that much time. So is it really relevant to look back that far? That's a great question. And sometimes in a recent meeting uh, with an investor, they were not only were they not interested in maybe looking back to 1926, but when it came to discussing the performance of certain investment strategies, it was what's happened in the last three months right? and what's happened over the last 12 months. And so are those reasonable time periods to make any decisions whatsoever about the merits of your strategy or or the uh, pitfalls or potential dangers of another strategy or the merits of, of another strategy you're evaluating. And I would say no, but we'll get to that if that's okay. Sounds good. Let's do it. So, Ethan, uh, the study, I, I, we were busy in a meeting just now, and so I didn't have a, an enormous amount of time to review this. So I'm going to I'll try to go through it, but you can jump in. I know you had a chance to read it briefly. Yeah, only I'd say I'm excited to hear about this because this is something that, um, you know, we work with clients all the time, and and several clients in the last few weeks or the last couple months have talked about this. And so I'm actually uh, interested in hearing the data myself. We have all the daily data on the S&P going back to they're using 1962, and I think the significance of that is not that they're cherry-picking the time frame. I think it's where you can get good daily data. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll verify that because I know when we were working on daily data to do a study on rebalancing, on, on right. timing the markets yep. uh, to determine if some of the strategies work or don't work, uh, that's about the time period we were getting back to to get good daily data. Right. I, I just clarify that if you're talking about daily versus, say, monthly data, uh, just different intervals of time. So you'd have 12 data points if it's monthly data, but you'd obviously have a full year's worth of data if it's okay. daily data. Yeah, whatever the trading days are. Right. So, so it's better to have daily data. Gives you a larger data. sample. Exactly right. And then also worth noting is then when you're looking to get create more periods of observation, you can do rolling periods. So if you said, hey, I started January 1st, let's go out 12 months, um, or say January 2nd, because I think the market's closed on the 1st typically. <laughs> well, let's say it was January 2nd, and then you did a rolling 12 months, then you could go, well, now we'll do January 3rd and go another rolling three months. Uh, 12 months, I'm sorry, Ethan. You can get a lot more data out of that than just taking one single year. Right. Um, That could be for 2005, for example, Mm -hmm. and you could create a lot of different periods. All right, so we're looking at using daily data in the manner which I just described. and says, well, basically, if if we hit a new high and we look ahead and we're going to look at periods of one, three, six, and 12 months out, 
tabulated um, tabulating the percentage of the time the index was at or above the level it had reached when it set the new high. Um, and in that case, it looks like you've got about, in the one-month data, uh, 59% of the uh, time uh, the index is higher after it hit the new high, uh, one month out. Okay. 63% of the time, it was three months, and uh, when you get to six months, 71% of the time, and 12 months later, 72% of the time, the market was higher after hitting a new high. Does that make sense? I think so. Am I getting that right? That's pretty amazing. So in the num- number of percent of cases where index is higher after hitting a new high, so either one month, three months, six months, or 12-month periods, after a year has gone by, 72% of the time, it, the index is higher still. Had been higher, yeah. It's hitting a new new all-time high. Yes. Yes. So if you were saying, hey, hitting a new high is is an indication that the market will likely go down from here, uh, that that is not borne out in the data Right. if we look at those time periods. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the short term, which I would expect to be rather random, yeah, uh, but one way we can look at or test that is to say, um, what if we just looked at at um, what the what the what the index did, uh, regardless of whether we hit a new high or not. That's well said. <laughs> uh, a a play out of our friend Mike's book there. Um, percentage of cases where the index is higher in general well, in any one month, then. Um, it would be 60.3%, looks like, where three months would be 63.8, um, six months 67.5, and in any 12-month period, it's 73%. Oh, I see. Hang on a second. So first one was, the first numbers we read were monthly data, right? That's that's cor- monthly data? I'm sorry. Monthly I'm data? I'm not changing the data frequency, I don't think, am I? Oh, okay. So they're, it's still daily what, data. Yeah. Okay. What we're saying is, though, hey, how would you know that that means anything if every time we've hit a new high, the subsequent 12, uh, one month was 59% of the time the market continued on to be higher, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you'd want to know, well, at any time when I when I invest, if I just randomly invest at any time, what would be the percentage odd of the odds of me having a, a higher, a positive return in the subsequent one month? Okay. Okay, so they're saying, well, in the case where uh, the index is higher after a new high. That's one statistic. And then there's, well, what other case index is higher after any level, right? At any point <laughs> okay, in time. Okay, gotcha. See what I'm saying? Now I do, yeah. Yeah. And um, they're very they're very close, actually. Almost identical. If you look at the data, right? So uh, other than the, the one month is, is slightly, it's a 1% difference. Uh-huh. But um, huh. when you get out even to the next 12 months, it's, Hey, seventy-three percent of the time, um, the market's going to be up. I mean, historically speaking, twelve months after you've put money into it um, on a daily basis. Does that make sense? Yes, that's great stuff. Okay, so if it if you happen to hit a very a new high, it was seventy-two point six. I think the difference there is pretty insignificant. I would agree. Um, so it, it's just it's just something to think about when you're saying. That there's no indication that the market achieving a new uh, level, a high, historically high level, 
has any determining factor on whether I should stay invested. There needs to be some other factors that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. So simply hitting that high or the market achieving uh, a new high doesn't make any. And, and if you think about that, Ethan, if what if the dividend payout went up? What if earnings went up substantially? Um, why why would we expect the market to go down when that's what we talked about a few weeks ago? When we were saying, well, if the market hit a new high, it may still be trading at the very same multiple it was ten years ago. Right, and it may the 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 market moving upward doesn't mean that you're paying more for each dollar of earnings, because it could be moving up in sync with an increase in the earnings that you're getting. Right, that's that's one way to say how expensive something is or how how cheap something is is the the ratio. Precisely, and that's what matters really the most. It's kind of like your luxury Camry that you have, Ethan. Uh-huh. That hybrid. You know, it does have a nice moonroof and leather seats. Premium leather seats. Yeah. Uh, I believe there's a navigation system. Definitely, although it's I got an old. old hey, it's a little bit older now. Yeah, but I remember you were pretty excited when you got it. But oh, I'm still pretty excited. The price that you paid for that, you would say, hey, if you shot back to 1962 and the study started, people would say, wow, that's ridiculous. They didn't have Camry hybrids back then. Well, no. All right. I mean, the technology wasn't there. True. But if they did. Um, <laughs> Nobody would pay the amount of uh, the obscene amount of money that you paid for that car, <laughs> because back then it would have been an obscene amount of money, right? Well, it would have, it would have been from the future. It, it How really, much would you pay for, for for a car from the future back then? Right, an enormous amount of money. I don't know. I mean, I whatever you paid it was probably too little. It was worth way more, I'm sure. That's a good point. That's, That's a, good, a point. good point. Uh, the point I'm making is just that the the car is actually probably cheaper than what cars cost back then. But inflation has, has kept them the same, right? That maybe for a luxury Camry in 1962, you would have paid something like $5,000. Yes, maybe. For it. Uh, and, and so it doesn't mean that, hey, because we've hit an all-time high in the price of Camrys, that it's a bad time to buy a Camry. Because <laughs> clearly you don't feel that way. Well, You're loading up. I don't regret the decision. If that's it's a true. Camry. <laughs> Okay, Ethan, we're going to take a quick break. I think we should. Uh, I, I know this is a lot to take in, and uh, we'll proceed on with this discussion about uh, should you be invested as we're hitting new highs. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. As your business grows, are you growing with it? Do you have the right balance of time, attention, work, and personal life? 
Take the growing pains out of growth and tune into The Business Edge with Marsha Zidle. If you are spending most of your energy managing problems rather than focusing on taking your business to the next level, our program will give you the steps you need to make sure you have everything in place for forward-thinking business leadership. The Business Edge is heard every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Brogo, alongside Ken Smith. And uh, Ken, we were just talking about before the break, um, talking about the the idea of hitting new highs in the market and whether or not it's an indicative of highs to come in the future. Should we stay invested, in other words? And if you look at the data, historically speaking, there's really been no significant difference in future returns just because you hit a new high. Right. The market, so it really shouldn't affect your the fact that we're, we've hit a new high shouldn't affect your decision making, um, good, but positive or negative. I think that's the important thing to to be clear about. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're looking at the data, you'd say, well, seventy three percent of the time it's higher a year later. That's a pretty good odds, anyways. Now, if we're hitting new highs and people are paying a hundred times earnings, that's a whole different scenario. That. You may want to take a look at, but even then, it's very hard and very difficult to determine because now we're in a state of irrationality with the market, right? Where sure. people are paying, and once they're in that, you don't. Even then, you don't know how far, how long that will go, and that's where a lot of people got burned um, during the the '90s because either they were shorting things, trying to make a profit on things being overvalued, and they were became insolvent because it continued to persist for some time. <laughs> that's true. Um, Longer than they could remain solvent and profit off of that. Right. Uh, and while others, maybe they stayed out. Uh, and in reality, the very fact that we're hitting all-time highs means that we've fully recovered from both of the, ta- the, the downturns. Right. The substantial downturns we've gone through since early 2000. Mm-hmm. So... How, in conclusion of this this discussion, before we move on to the next topic here, Ethan, I okay. wanted to wrap in those questions about, well, what is the meaning of, of looking back in data? And is, it, is it relevant to look back in time? It's a fair question. Should we go back to the future? <laughs> you were talking about that with the car and stuff. Yeah, my, De- um, my DeLorean's uh, working just fine. You got the DeLorean all tuned up? So... I think it is, and it was a question that we received from an individual we were meeting. Is hey, I don't, I don't. If we if we have data on the U.S. stock market that's um, readily available to 1926, and you can dig and get data even further back, but prices were readily available, it's easy to get that data. Why is why is any of that relevant? Should you consider that? And I would say, well, because one of the things that investors have said to me, Ethan, they'll say, well. Those were different times, and we're facing different we're 
facing different issues now. Mm-hmm. Maybe even the system is different. And uh, so I don't know that looking at that data and expecting something to happen in the future that connects to that data is relevant. And there may be an argument to that, but in the context of what we're trying to get investors to do to improve their investment results mm-hmm. uh, is not blindly look back at the, at, the, at the past and say, whatever return we got, that's what I'm going to plug into my plan, and I'll get that next year and the year after, right? Right. Um, now, that's probably better than going back if we're in 1999 and saying, let me take the last 10 years of equity returns and plug those into my future financial plan. Because I saw a lot of people doing that and saying, if you guys can't get me double-digit returns every year, you're not getting me 18 to 20%. Why am I even talking to you? <laughs> sure. And they were building their entire plan around that. Now, some people, not everybody, yeah. and most advisors weren't, but I think they're – even most advisors are skewing their estimates upward in terms of how they were planning. Sure. And I don't think I, I think you're far better you're you're better off at at that point using a longer term average of returns than you are taking whatever has most recently happened and applying it. So sure. are the last ten years relevant? Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But you can have extreme much a, a much wider variation of returns over very short periods. Mm-hmm. So even short-term past returns aren't necessarily better than long-term. And here's what I, I'm trying to get to, Ethan. If if there was the ability to look back and say, well, the, if, if each time we, as we progressed in history, from 1926 to now, for example, mm-hmm. there have been professional investors around all through that time. And there were mutual funds that had gone back way back in time in the 1940s, right? And what you would find, I think, more than we do is, well, they all faced unique challenges of their time. And who better to know what those challenges were than the managers that were in those times? And so how did they fare as they navigated through those time periods? And the results still seem to be the same, that they didn't do any better being in that and going, well, hey, we're, we're throwing out the past data and we're just focusing on what's going on right now to make investment decisions. You, you should be able to go back in time and see that managers made very good decisions with it because right, most professional stock picking kind of investors, they're looking at what's going on today. They don't really care about 1926 or 27, right? Uh, that's true, yeah. They're saying, hey, we're interpreting the valuations of the market and all the news that's out there and we're trying to make the best projection on what will happen going forward. The problem is that they're consistently wrong. Right. And they've been consistently wrong for a long time. So if if that were to be the case, if you were asking yourself this question of, well, why do I care about the past? I should really just be interpreting what's going on now and adjusting my portfolio. What you should know, what's relevant about the past is kind of a, a wild discussion here. But what's relevant about the past is the fact that no one's been able to do it when they were in current times. This is kind of a back-to-the-future scenario, right? Yeah. If you shot back to 2000, January 2007 and you said, well, I've got to I've got to do what's – I don't care what happened since 1926. One of the things you would have eliminated was the ability to know, wow, in 1926, the markets – certain parts of the market dropped 80%. So if I ignored that, I would be ignoring the possibility that my invest my equity investments could decline substantially. Would that have been a wise thing to do? Right. As you had headed through 
2008-2009, that time period? Probably, Probably not. not. Probably I think not. in that case, history and knowing your history would have served you very well and would have been incredibly relevant. It's proof that in certain cases, the history does repeat itself, that we can have significant declines. So knowing that, I don't know how that would hurt you. And I don't know why you would want to ignore that data or that risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I don't hear too many people saying, well, the market's much less riskier today than it was back then. <laughs> yeah, nor do uh, I. Uh, that's not the feel that I think most people have. I think when they say, hey, the past is no longer relevant, the context that I hear that more than anything is because if when you show the returns you've gotten by being a dis- – if you've stuck with equities, they're pretty good in spite of everything we've gone through. That's right. Or when we're going through difficult times, they're very, they're, you look back and go, wow, even now, having sat through this downturn, I still would have gotten a, a good return on my money had I been invested during that period. So they're not, they're not necessarily looking at it from the perspective of the risk, but, but that's where we use the past a lot, is to understand what risk we might be encountering. Right. So that's one huge fall. And in 2007, um, I don't know, in 2007, um, how many of the professional money managers out there that were managing equity portfolios said, I don't care what our mandate is, we've got to get everybody to cash before this thing goes down, 50? How many are you aware of, Ethan? Yeah, not many. I don't know. Uh, I can't name one for you. I'm sure there was a couple, but I don't know who they are. Yeah. I mean, there's certain <clears throat> managers out there that are always doing that. Mm-hmm. And so even if, if there, wa- there are a few, there's a, a book... Yeah, you wrote the Liar's Poker book, um, Michael something, but uh, he wrote the, uh, the big short, right? And mm-hmm. he outlines the uh, hedge fund manager yeah. that bought the deri- that, you know, saw this derivative issue and he shorted those and made, a, made an enormous amount of money, right? And it wasn't easy, by the way. My recollection of that story is that uh, um, he, he almost went bankrupt. <laughs> Doing it, losing his, his his fund, right? Right. The investors were just, "What are you doing? I don't understand what you're doing." He was just like, "No, you have to hang on here. This is what's going to happen." Right. But by the end, he was pulling his hair out, and he, he was it was terrible. He had a terrible life <laughs> up to that point. And the fact that he was that miserable. worked out for him in that particular situation, in my view, is no different than looking at the person who won the last lottery and saying, "I'm going to base my my investment strategy around that person's success." Right. Is really no different. Um, so outside of, of those situations where, yeah, people do win the lottery, right, even though the odds are very tiny, it, it doesn't mean it's a great strategy for you. Mm-hmm. And there weren't a lot of people back then that were saying, hey, otherwise we would have saw it, right, the mutual. It wasn't happening. And so all my point is, is if you're if you're so quick to dismiss the past, rather than use it as one simple tool, it doesn't mean you blindly follow it. It means what logical ways could I use the past to make better decisions going forward? And if you don't know your market history, you're likely to make very, very large mistakes at all the worst possible times. Mm-hmm. So I, I just to answer that, that was a question. And how much time is relevant when you're looking at performance? Is the last three months, as someone was asking me, well, how, how, how have your portfolios done over the last three months? Right. And could I get 2012? That may be very curious, you know, interesting information, but it would be if I was sitting on the other side of the table, knowing everything I know, and I was looking for a professional advisor to help, mm-hmm. or or even trying to get a grip on, yeah, hey, I think I'm doing okay myself right now. 
So is there any value that you could add to my life? Looking at the last three months or 12 months would be completely irrelevant. Agreed. I would have, other than if it was down, you know, if you lost, hey, all of our investors lost all their money in the last three months. (laughs) I guess would be very relevant and I would want to know that. I think it's more important to to understand the strategy at that point. I mean, um, last three months, last 12 months, last whatever, year and a half, doesn't doesn't really matter that much in the scheme of things. I mean, as long as it's close to some reasonable benchmarks that, that, that you know, are indices or whatever during that period of time, that'd be the only thing I'd be concerned about. And then further, well, how are you making investment decisions? You know, what's the rationale for the, the approach that you have? Those would be important things, I, I think, more so than what's the performance for the last three months. I'm not basing any choices on that alone, right? Well, it'd be more rel- Yeah, exactly. I mean, you'd want to, you, if you were going to look at that data, you'd say, well, where did those returns come from and why did they occur? Yeah, that's exactly why you look, you look at Morningstar ratings, right? If you only bought five-star funds, well, you'd be pretty disappointed in the outcome of that because the past performance is really not indicative of the future results, as we all know. Uh, in fact, it may be a good time to, to avoid the five-star funds, as, as the, the, the case may be, right? Yeah, it's, just, it's more important to understand the strategy. More important to understand the strategy than the, the recent performance. Well, I like your style, Ethan. You're a real tiger. Of course you do. <laughs> Okay, well, we've got about a minute here. Um, real quick, in the last minute, just looking over the market, we uh, we were saying we broke through these highs, and looks like year-to-date, the S&P 500 is up about 11.72, Ethan, and the uh, World Stock Index uh, is up about 7.73. So that was one of the points I would make. If you were looking at performance of a globally diversified portfolio for the year, mm-hmm. you would not hire someone because they happen to be all large-cap U.S. stocks this year, and they've done better. Right? Right. You would go, well, my portfolio is better because there's a reason why we think you should diversify outside of large U.S. stocks that persist beyond this year-to-date experience. Sure. Y- you know what I'm saying? I think I do. Okay, good. Um, so emerging markets year-to-date is still continuing to struggle. It's down around 4%, Ethan. Mm-hmm. Uh, EFA, the EFA index up 6.51%. And within the United States, if you look at uh, growth versus value, you have value doing a little bit better, large value up 13.72. Let's take a quick break, Ethan. All right. uh, We'll come back and talk about this gold article. You know, is now a good time to get out of gold? Sounds good. We'll find out. Be right back. the boardroom to you voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com that's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. 
Did you know that at the root of every business problem lies a communication issue? Communication Nation, a show that brings effective business communication practices to the masses, addresses a number of topics and talking points that impact your professional development, as well as business productivity and profitability. Host Jill Schiffelbein makes the theoretical tangible. Tune in each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be ready to become a better communicator with Communication Nation. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. We're back, Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Um, Ken, what are we going to talk about next? This is our third section of the day. What's the next topic for us? Well, I'm glad you asked, Ethan, because I'm wondering that myself. No, um, <laughs> I thought Eric forwarded me this article in the New York Times. Gold, a long a secure investment, loses its luster. I thought we could just kind of... I'm sorry, can you say that again? <laughs> Gold loses its luster. Okay, perfect. Okay. Um, so I thought we could talk about that a little bit, because we've talked about gold all through uh, the last few yeah. years, actually, of being on the radio, because as markets were doing very poorly and interest rates were very low and mm-hmm. the deficit is running through the roof and they're printing money. I've heard that. Um, right. Sure. The printing presses are on fire with all the money that we're printing and all that kind of stuff that the world was really going to come to an end. And the only thing you could do to get some food or maybe a beverage... Save yourself. ...would have a couple of gold shekels to toss around the room. Yeah. And um, that may or may not uh, be true in the long run, but I think our view is, well, we're not necessarily saying don't own any gold. It's just, But it would be the same as us saying put all your money into one particular stock sure if we got into that or put all your money into a sector of stocks or put all your money into one apartment building or put all your they all may be have merits as investments right but there would be no reason to diversify if there was a single not silver bullet but maybe a gold bullet oh yes i don't know if you're going to use silver why not gold (laughs) but if there was a silver bullet uh right there would be no reason to diversify if the answer was... Well, that's for sure. Okay. So this idea of diversification, which as your Nobel Prize winning friend Harry Markowitz told you in person on, on the show. That's right. Well, not in person, but he was on the phone. We were in here. Yes, that's correct. At the high atop the... Uh, empirical yeah, Towers. Yeah, Empirical Towers. Uh-huh. And he said, hey, it was, it was relevant in Shakespeare's day, Ethan, and you're a man of poetry and a real renaissance man. Mm-hmm. And it's relevant today, this idea of diversifying. They would carry things in different ships. So let's get into this article because I want to save yeah, enough time for I think you. he was quoting The Merchant of Venice in that particular. Yeah, The Merchant of Venice. I recall, all right. So here's the article. Uh, Nathaniel Popper says, uh, Below the streets of Lower Manhattan, the vault of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the world's largest trove of gold, half a million bars, has lost about $75 billion 
dollars of its value. In Fort Knox, Kentucky, uh, at the United States Bullion Depository, yeah, the damage totals fifty billion dollars. And in Pocatello, Idaho, the tiny golden treasure of John Nordstock has dwindled too. A twenty-nine thousand dollar investment that Mister Nordstock made in 2011 is now worth about $17,000, a whopping loss of 42%, Ethan. Well, you've been making a killing in the market over that time. Is that true? You making a killing? I don't know. No, no, that I'm part. Just kidding. The person in Idaho. So he bought some gold. It sounds like at the all-time high. Is that what they're saying? And then that, from the all-time high, it's down that much? Um, yes, that's correct. Wow. That's, that's what he's... Uh, that's surprising. That's what he's saying. And... Um, Wow. So it can be a, a sad situation. <laughs> Indeed. I also didn't know that the, the world's largest stock of gold is in New York. Underneath, underneath the streets of the Federal Reserve. That's what it says. Okay. Wow. Can we fact check that? No, I'm just kidding. Around. Or I'll stop crying. Moving on. Okay. I thought it would... I thought, it, I thought if worst case... If worst came to worse... The government brought down the world economy. I would still have something that is worth something, Mr. Nordstock, who is 67, says of his foray into gold. Gold, pride of crisis and store of wealth since time immemorial, has turned out to be a very bad investment of late. A mere two years after its price raced to a nominal high, gold is sinking fast. Its price has fallen 17%. Is that em- emphasis added? Is that how that works? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, taking some liberties here. I like here it. In the I like article. it. Uh, how much time? Uh, okay. Plenty of time. Anyway, it's fallen 17%. Uh-huh. Wednesday was another bad day for gold. The price of bullion dropped $28 to 1558 an ounce. Oh, man. It's a remarkable turnaround, turnabout for an investment that, may, that many have long regarded as one of the safest of all, which we addressed... I don't know, five years ago, about it's not safe at all. It, it has a volatile, very, can drop 50% right. um, very quickly at times. It's not safe in the term of it never can go down in value. Um, over the long run, it's held up uh, about pace with inflation. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the stakes are high. The last time the metal went through a patch like this in the 1980s, it took 30 years to recover. Um, now these guys have continued to run these gold commercials. You know, it's 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 pretty absurd. But I'm not going to comment on that right now. What went wrong? The answer in part lies with what went right. Analysts said gold is losing its allure after an astonishing 650 percent rally from 1999 to 2011. You can't argue that either. It is pretty astonishing. It is what it is. I, I'm not arguing that at all. Fast money hedge fund managers and ordinary savers alike they flock to gold. That haven of havens, when the economy teared on the brink in 2009. <laughs> haven of havens. The now the worst of the recession has passed. Things are looking up for the economy, and as a result, down for gold. On top of that, concern that that loose monetary policy at the Federal Reserve might set off inflation. You know, it's a prospect that drove investors to gold have so far proved to be unfounded, Ethan. Mm-hmm. And so Wall Street is growing increasingly bearish on gold an investment that banks and others had definitely marketed to the masses only a few short years ago. On Wednesday, your friend Goldman Sachs became the latest big bank to predict further declines, forecasting that the price of gold would sink to 1390 within a year, down 11% from where it traded on Wednesday. Huh. 
And the General of France last week issued a report titled The End of the Gold Era. Wow, this is so wild how quickly it's turned. Yeah. On its head. Because where things really were picking up, it wasn't in 1999 that people were all these, I wasn't seeing a lot of these commercials. It was just recently where people mm-hmm. were being told to buy gold like crazy. Yeah. Um, and we were saying, hey, in a well balanced portfolio, there's a place for some gold. You know, it would have been helpful to have these headlines uh, as gold was peaking about a year and a half, two years ago. That would have been nice. I didn't hear it then, though. It's only now, after it's been down for two years in yeah. a row, that these uh, things come out. I'm looking at the difference of the GLD, you know, the GLD, the gold ETF versus the Dow Jones. Uh, since its peak, you have the Dow Jones up about roughly 35% and gold down 16% over that same period. So obviously, the disparity of returns there is enormous over that period of time. In April 2011, Ethan, poll by Gallup, they found 34% of Americans thought that gold was the best long-term investment more than any other investment category, including real estate and mutual funds. Hmm. So it's hard to know just how much money ordinary Americans plowed into gold. I just bumped into someone the other day who said they did quite well because they bought it uh, several years ago. And, I mean, even with the declines, it's still up about 515% Yeah. since uh, 1999. You'd have to annualize it, but it's better than stocks have done. Sure. Over that period of time, but there will always be an asset class that does better than another over a ten-year period of time. There's no doubt no about surprise it. or shock in that. It's really, do you have the foresight to not only get into it, Ethan, but get out? So now you're holding a bunch of physical gold. A lot of people were buying that. Are they getting out now? Will they get out? And in, in my estimation, a lot of people won't. That they won't go and, and unload that gold, uh, they'll hang on to it. Mm-hmm. And so, even though, even if they were early in the upswing, and they've fully participated, if gold sits there and does what it did do through the '80s and, and doesn't really do much at all, while while the, the global economies recover and markets do quite well, um, they might just do very very poorly over the entire period. Say they hold it for another 20 years, if gold didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But markets picked back up and did quite well. Um, so it's not just getting it right. Like the person that I talked to the other day said, hey, I, I bought gold uh, at the beginning of the, uh, not this most recent election, but the last election when Obama became president because he assumed there would be deficit spending, I guess, and, and which that's worked out for him. Gold's up since that particular period of time. Maybe for different reasons than he thought, though. Mm-hmm. Um but it did go up. The, the real question, though, and I wasn't hearing is, hey, I'm going to sell it. I was hearing quite the opposite, that I think things are going to continue to be bad. And I, Because what leads you down a path of putting a lot of money into one particular asset class usually is a there's a, there's a lot of beliefs, that come, very strong emotional beliefs going into that. Just like what you, you read about Mr. Nordstrog here, mm-hmm. um, right? He thought everything, I mean, if you kind of get the, the, the text or the context uh, he said, I thought if worse came to worst and the government brought down the world economy, I would still have something that was worth something. And so this isn't an investor saying, hey, I really bought gold because I thought it presented the best characteristics of an investment that will en- enhance my retirement. Right. This is an investor who clearly was buying into what he was hearing on these radio advertisements, that the world's coming to an end and this will be the only thing that's worth anything. Right. The question is, how does he ever, will he unwind this position? So he has a decision to make right now in this moment, Ethan. And that is, is it, is there ever a bad time to make a prudent change in your strategy? 
And I would, if, if Mr. Nordstrog was right here next to you and you guys were looking eye to eye, Ethan, I think you would tell him, hey, it, it doesn't matter what, where gold is or it's down 17%. You've lost us. We need it. We need it. We need to regroup and develop a plan for you, which would include a diversified portfolio. Is that what you would say? Basically what I would say. Like you say, it's always prudent to, to make a good investment choice. And that's really the point. It's not about trying to say someone is right or wrong about a particular asset. That's what we're saying is don't get into that game. Right. Now, how would Mr. Nordstock have done if he had a well-balanced portfolio? Um, or even anyone who bought gold, because what they relate equities when they say equities over the last 10 years, uh, 13 years, right, or since 19, typically they're referring to one index, like the large U.S. companies. Mm-hmm. Well, we know a globally diversified portfolio. I don't know if you have the data there in our little sheet, but... Um, yeah, but I have then, the all-equity index here, global index. Yeah, what's that done over the last... Yeah, since the peak... Or so? Oh, the decade. Or whatever. Well, I just had the peak. I was looking Give at me what you got. Well, since the peak of, of the, the gold price here, um, the total world stock market index is up about 25%. Dow Jones up about thirty five percent. Gold negative fifteen, negative sixteen percent. Okay. What's so funny about that? I don't know. Who, who did that? Not Julia. Me. <laughs> All right. Okay. So that's the point. Um, I think we have about a minute. That's the point we're trying to make here, Ethan. Is it's 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 more about. Um, it's not so much as is gold going to be a bad investment. And that's why you should be reducing your position in it. Yeah, it's gold should never dominate your portfolio. Just like one stock should never dominate, or one bond should never dominate your portfolio. Yeah, I think it's it's very dangerous when you start to think that you know what's going to happen. Like you know, hey, what's going to happen with one particular stock or one particular part of the market? Because you you'll make decisions that invariably will be incorrect. And that's what the golden rule, being diversified, is all about. Well, how do you think about adjusting your portfolio to to uh, reflect the probability of the end of the world. Is that a great way to, to position yourself? I don't. I don't think so. I mean, the world comes to an end. Uh, boy, whether or not I have, you know, it's very low likely it's going to happen. If you have a nice, so I, if I plan for that event, that, that bracelet with some diamonds, will that help you? <laughs> Wouldn't save me. Oh, okay. I don't think well, so. we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the health savings account stuff that we talked about last week, but we didn't quite finish. All right. We'll be right back. <laughs> business you'll find the experts here voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? 
Lions don't wait, they just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. Okay, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your host, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Uh, thanks for joining us today. This is our last segment of the day. I think it's a nine-minute segment. And then we're going to cover, I think, health savings accounts, Ken. We have uh, an article here. Yeah, let's just do a little talk about it, Ethan. I think we should. I think it sounds great. Uh, there was uh, an article here by Michelle Andrews. It looks like it was posted on the NPR website. Oh, yeah. And the title is, uh, The Hidden Limitations of Health Savings Accounts. And, uh, yeah, well, maybe I'll start reading to this. We can kind of pause as we want to and uh, talk about the issues that are, that are raised. How's okay. that sound? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Health plan deductibles keep getting higher. The proportion of workers with a deductible that topped $1,000 for single coverage uh, nearly tripled in the past five years to 34%. That's a pretty big deductible, $1,000. Um, since high deductible plans often mean you pay more out of pocket for medical care, it might seem like a no-brainer to sign up for the plan that links to a health savings account so you can sock away money tax-free to cover your medical expenses. But, it says here, there are good reasons to think twice before making that choice. And so we're going to get into some of these here. Um, oh, and by the way, just so folks know what a health, case, health savings account is, um, basically it's kind of like an IRA account uh, for designed to be for medical expenses. So you can put money into this account. Basically, you get a tax deduction for it like you would for a tax-deductible IRA contribution. Uh, the rule stipulates, though, that you have to use the money for, guess what, medical expenses uh, to avoid being taxed on the money coming out of it. So that's the, that's the kind of idea. And in general, they have to be tied to a high-deductible health plan. So you can't okay. just go out and, you know, if we don't have a high-deductible health plan here at work, I can't go out and open one of these accounts and put money into it. Although I think that would be a reasonable thing to have. Um, that, but the rules are today anyway, you can't do that. You have to have a specifically a high deductible health plan, which means you have to have a health plan that has a fairly high deductible to qualify for these types of uh, savings vehicles. All righty, then. That's the main, main gist of it, anyway. Um, in order to get the, the tax advantages of a health savings account, the health plan is linked. Oh, has, I just, exactly what I had just said. has to be linked to a uh, high deductible health plan. Uh, here's the rules the minimum deductibles are. Uh, 1250 for single coverage and 2500 for family coverage. So that, that's a pretty pretty high deductible, um, meaning that you'd cover the first 1250 bucks of medical costs out of pocket before your insurance would kick in. Okay. And uh, 2500 for for family coverage. So um, still fairly high. Um, but the health savings accounts 
the health saving account qualified plans have other limitations that consumers often aren't aware of. I think this is where it gets good. For one thing, even though the Affordable Care Act allows parents to keep their adult children on their policies until they reach 26 or age 26, okay. they can't use funds from their – they call them the HSA plans here or health savings accounts – to pay for child's care after age 24. And it says here, that's because dependents – uh, that's because dependent, quote-unquote, is defined differently for HSA purposes than it is under the ACA provisions that extend dependent care coverage for adult children. So what are they saying here? Looks like they're saying that uh, even though the Health Care Act allows you to keep adult children on, on your policies until age 26, um, for health, HSA purposes, it's, it's not – they don't go beyond age 24, basically. So there's a two-year gap. I'm not sure that's a big reason not to contribute to these things, though. Right. I don't know why I would – I mean, is that the reason why I'm making a contribution so I can pay for my child's health Well, let me care? ask you, is that um, – because you're not setting one up for your child anyway. It's under yours? Yeah. Is that – let's say you have a high-deductible health plan and you're covered and your spouse is covered and your kids are covered. Right. Are you opening up an individual HSA for each of them, the parties involved, or is it just one account? You can- yeah, you can uh, – it would be – like if I open one for, let's say I had a high deductible health plan. In fact, I used to a couple of years I ago. I loved it. It was fine. Okay. I, did, I liked it all right. Worked out okay. Um, but yeah, I was able to use uh, use the use the, the health savings account for expenses, medical expenses for my whole family, not just myself personally. Okay. So my kids, okay. right, and my wife could we participated in all this. So, uh, and I know you guys have you know. You you utilized it. Sure, we did. A lot of stuff with kids get they get sick and all that. Kind yeah, of stuff. young kids are you know, always. But the fact that uh, the kid was twenty six versus twenty four, I don't know. Uh, as long as you could use it for yourself and for your spouse now and uh, in the future, right? Yeah. that's a whole different story. I would agree. I, I don't know uh, that I would stop making contributions because I can't use it for my twenty five year old child, who's currently on my health my health plan. Yeah, that that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But if he was on your health plan or she, they would. Then in, you couldn't use the HSA. You'd be dealing with the deductible part, right? Yeah, exactly right. Okay. So I'd have to deal with the deductible. I couldn't use that HSA to come up with the money for the deductible, basically. Right. Okay. Which, that wouldn't be great necessarily, but I still would contribute to the health savings account because guess what? It all grows tax-free. Totally tax-free. If used for medical expenses in the future. That's a pretty good incentive. That's and and you get a tax deduction in the meantime. Mm-hmm. That's all pretty good. So I, I don't know why I wouldn't do it for that reason. I guess if you were doing the entire thing just to to provide some sort of plan for your 25-year-old, that would be a different story. That would entirely defeat yeah. the purpose because obviously the rules don't allow that. But Okay. Um, it's for, good to know that, though. Yeah. While it may not ex- – I don't think it's a strong case for for not doing it, although it just says the hidden limitations. So. Right. Reasonable. Proceed. All right. Let's move on here. In addition, it says, except for preventative care, which is generally covered at 100%, and is not subject to the deductible, consumers in an HSA-qualified plan may be on the hook for the entire cost of medical care, including doctor's visits, medications, tests, treatments, so forth and such. I know you like to say that. Uh, until they reach their deductible. So I'm not really sure what they're saying. That was kind of a convoluted sentence. Read that, read so that, read that uh, in addition, ex- except for preventive care, which is generally covered 100%, is not sub- subject to the deductible. Consumers... Uh, may be on the hook for the entire cost of medical care, including doctor's visits. Oh, well, that makes sense. Until they reach their deductible. Oh, I see. So there's no, what they're saying is the high deductible health plan a lot of times doesn't have a shared element to it. So like the first first out-of-pocket is entirely yours. 
there's no 80% coverage for, for you, and you know, then you pay 20%. So this is more a limitation of having a high deductible than it is the savings portion. In general, yeah. Right? Okay. And this isn't uniform, by the way. There isn't just one HSA plan out there. There's, guess what? There's tons of them. Um, so each of them will have their own specific types of rules relative to this. So the first, the first um, up until the deductible is reached, you may indeed be able to share some of the expense with the insurance agent, mm-hmm. your insurance company rather, um, in some plans. But I guess it's plan specific, is what I would say. So it isn't like a one. This is always the case, always true. Not not true. It'll be different for each plan, which is obviously important to know as you decide if you should participate in one of these or not. Know the options. How much time we have left? Minute. All right, great. Um, Keep it going. All right. Regular high deductible plans, on the other hand, offer more many more options. Well, that's true. In addition to covering uh, preventative care at 100%, some function like traditional plans requiring only a copay for doctor visits and medicines even before the deductible is met, which is exactly what we just said. So they, they really they really visit or they really differ uh, plan to plan. It's something that you have to, you know, you look into specifically in your plan and see what the, the, the rules are, basically. Um, and that's basically just, they have a closing here that says you need to evaluate these in the full spectrum, which I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think it's worth knowing what they are and and maybe in the future we can talk a little bit more about areas where you think they are good deals for people. But uh, we're out of time. So, again, throughout the week, if you want to shoot us an idea, question, or comment, contact at EMPIRadio.com. Or you can give us a call at the firm here, 1-800-923-4307. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. 